0: Welcome Janann Brunel to How to Build a Village. So excited to welcome Janann, who's a London-based American journalist covering arts, culture, education, and development stories for publications including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and National Public Radio. She is working on a book about surrogacy and assisted reproductive technology in countries around the world, and she has covered her own journey to motherhood for the Financial Times, and of course, also in this upcoming book. She's also on the board of the Michigan Fertility Alliance. So I'm so excited, Janan, to talk to you about your journey to motherhood and about how you turned this journey into such a happy story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So start from the beginning about how you started looking into having children and how you ended up achieving that goal.
1: Sure. So I, when I was 39, I froze my eggs, um, because at the time in the UK, you were really supposed to freeze your eggs before you were 40. And I jokingly referred to them as my in case of emergency break eggs. Um, (laughs) So I sort of thought, you know, oh, they'll just be fine. We'll put them we'll keep them in a freezer and it'll be okay. Um, And then I met and married my husband um, when I was sort of uh, 43, so a bit older. And we had at the time, even before we got married, we knew we kind of had to get it moving on this stuff. So we'd started doing a little bit of assisted reproductive technologies with IVF um, and other things, and nothing seemed to be working. We had frozen Mm. embryos, we did fresh transfers, we did all sorts of things. Um, I mean, we flushed my fallopian tubes, I mean, it was a whole whole process. And in the end, my doctor finally um, said, you know, I think we need to, you know, um, acknowledge that you have unexplained infertility. And she told me later, that oftentimes that means that it's probably something to do with my womb, that they just scientists, you know, know a lot about eggs. They know a lot about sperm. They know a lot about, you know, sort of, you know, ovaries, but they don't know a lot about the womb. So anyway, so, um, and so we, because we had all the frozen material, we had, you know, the frozen embryos and we had, you know, frozen, frozen eggs. We thought, well, since I can't carry a baby, let's look into surrogacy. And, you know, I live here in the UK, but obviously I'm from, you know, the US. And so we looked briefly into doing surrogacy here, but the list was like, 18 months long. And at that point, you know, I was like in my early to mid forties. And I thought we got to get this moving.
0: So we look, you, to- you mean the list for correct.
1: Yeah. So and so we also decided, you know, let's do it in the States because my mom still lives in Michigan. And the thought was that, you know, we do the surrogacy in Michigan and then, you know, the babies, we could sort of be there while we waited for passports and their, you know, vaccinations and all that stuff. Well, lo and behold, when we found an agency based in Boston and we asked to do a surrogacy in Michigan, they were like, uh, well, you can't because it's illegal. Mm. And at the time, I just didn't really look into it because I was sort of like so wanting to move forward on the surrogacy. I was like, let me park that. That's interesting. But let me just keep trying to, you know. So we ended up finding a surrogate in Illinois, Julie, um, who mm-hmm. I'm still in touch with, Aww. who's amazing. And she had three children and her husband had two children. It's a second marriage. And they were done having kids. But she had, you know, loved being pregnant. And she mm-hmm. um, had had a friend in high school who'd had ovarian cancer and couldn't have any children. So she kind of thought from a very early age, what would that mean for somebody? who couldn't have kids. And as somebody who loved being a mom, she thought, gosh, I really, it's its horrible that there are so many people out there on the planet who want to have kids but can't. So anyway, we transferred my eggs. They made them into embryos. We transferred a couple of those embryos. Nothing took the second time around, we transferred um, two of our frozen embryos that we'd shipped from London. They were quite international. They were shipped to LA. <laughs> and she went from Illinois, where she lived to LA and she got pregnant. And unfortunately at eight, eight weeks, she miscarried. And that was our last sort of genetic hope. Um, and then we said, all right, well, let's look into doing donor eggs, which when you're on the process of infertility, you sort of the things that you think you'll never do, you start to kind of think, okay, maybe we'll do them. Like, you know, when you're, when you're starting to do IVF, you're like, I would never do surrogacy. How bizarre. And then like, when you have to do surrogacy, you're like, well, that's okay, but I wouldn't do donor eggs. Mm -hmm. And then when that's your only option and you're already sort of in the forward motion, you think, okay, well, let's, let's do this. So we found a a wonderful egg donor, um, in the Midwest where I'm, well, I'm from Michigan. She's not from Michigan, but she's from a a Midwestern state. Mm -hmm. We got uh, a number of embryos and the doctor in LA said to us, you know, we can plant, two. What do you want? We can, you know, we've got a you know, really good girl, a uh, female embryo, really good male. And as we said, let's put in both. And now those have become my almost four-year-old twins um, who are a boy and girl and very cheeky and at nursery right now and probably <laughs> wreaking havoc as we speak across the district. So that's kind of the the long the long and short of of sort of our uh, surrogacy journey in terms of of what we
0: went through because yeah, what a roller coaster all uh, all those all those stages and because it's great to look back now because it led yeah. you to where you are but just every stage of it must have been so heartbreaking the ones that didn't go to plan
1: It is heartbreaking. I think when you look back, I mean, for me working on this book, so I, when COVID started, my book agent, Marianne Gunn O'Connor, who's based in Ireland, she's a wonderful, wonderful lady, she said, would you like to write a book about your surrogacy? And I sort of said, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to do it. And at that point, it had been long enough, having gone through the process, and my kids at that point were, you know, two and a half it felt like I was far enough away from like a lot of that pain to feel like I could write about it, but it was a very cathartic experience for me to write the book because there were things that I thought that I had kind of worked through that when I was writing it, I realized I actually hadn't really worked through. Like for example, about, two years ago, our egg donor, we had an open donation. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody out there who's thinking about, you know, using donor donor material, I beg you to do open donation, which is where you know, the person that's donating. Anyway, we Mm -hmm. spoke on the phone, whatever, anyway, she had reached back out to our clinic and said, you know, I understand that, you know, twins were born, and I'd like to see a picture and know a little bit more about them. And at the time, my initial, you know, mama bear reaction was like, no way, why would I do that? What does she want from, you know, this is doesn't Mm -hmm. feel right but working on the book and talking to people who were egg donors and talking to people who were born through egg donation and, you know, just sort of like why it's, you know, sort of really important for your kids to know about their sort of genetic background. I reached back out to our ag donor and I said, could we please establish somewhat of a relationship, you know, because Aww. I'd like my kids down the road if they would like to meet you or know more about you. Um, and she was lovely. She emailed me and back and she said, yeah, of course. So it was just interesting for me that, you know, again, the things that I thought I'd kind of worked through working on this book kind of made me realize that I kind of needed to kind of um, really do more of a, a deep dive emotionally about sort of having gone through all of this infertility. Um, and it was, you know, so, so
0: the So that in itself um, was really important for me. And have you spoken to the kids or do you plan to about their journey?
1: Very much so. I mean, I've already started, you know, um, my son doesn't really listen, but my daughter, you know, I talked to her a little bit about, you know, like how I had broken eggs and there was a nice lady who let me have some eggs Mm -hmm. and how like I had a broken belly, but there was another lovely lady who let me, you know, borrow her belly. And so we sort of, you know, they're too young to understand it. But, you know, one of the things that I was told over and over again, working on my book was how important it is that you tell your children as early as you can about their history and about their background, because, you know, it's something that if they grow up with it, being completely normalized, then they're just not going to think anything of it. Um, And one of the things that really made me feel quite good, you know, in working on this book is I came across an academic at Cambridge named Susan Gollenbach, and she is the only person in the world, actually, who's done a longitudinal study looking at um, the long-term a long-term study on on children who were born from surrogacy and so she's just finished or she's in the process of finishing up her 20-year interview so the kids that she started talking to are now 20 years old. And really, the underlying message that I got from her was, you know, the kids are all right. You know, at the end of the day, kids born from surrogacy, a lot of them, most of them just kind of go like, oh, yeah, it's this kind of like different way that I was born. But like, I'm much more interesting than just how it was born. Or some kids were like, isn't this a quirky, you know, intriguing story of how I came to being. So it made me feel good to realize that this one study, at least, and the only one that exists at this point in the world is that um, kids born through surrogacy, you know, are okay, especially. Um, If you tell them from the beginning, you know, this is how you came to be and they're like, yeah, cool, whatever, which I really was that kind of, you know, that's my last chapter of my book is talking about that. And I just it was a nice way to kind of wrap the book up to be like, you know, to
0: take a a line from the who. But, you know, the kids are all right. (laughs) And then and what else have you learned in in writing your book? It must be so interesting as a journalist when one of the sources is you, you know, as your own (laughs) figure, like a character in the book. I mean, what else has have you learned? Well, it was, it.
1: it was so fascinating. I mean, there's so many things that I learned. I mean, first of all, how different, I mean, this probably sounds dumb, but how different laws are from country to country and how the U.S., for example, I didn't understand why Michigan, as I mentioned earlier, where oh. it's illegal, I didn't quite get why it was illegal there and not in other places. Well, I was told that surrogacy law is considered um, both family law and contractual law and those both fall under state state laws versus federal. So each state can create their own laws. And I found out that you know Michigan is a very important global history and surrogacy because the first Commercial surrogacy contract in the world, as far as we know, was done in 1976 in Dearborn, Michigan wow. by a lawyer called Noel Keen. And then Noel Keane saw that this was something that a lot of people wanted. And so he started doing contracts with people all, all over the US and in Europe. And he unfortunately he, he was the one that created the contract for Baby M, which was the famous case mm. in the 1980s where the um the surrogate, the traditional surrogate, so the surrogate also happened to be. The egg donor. um, She had the child and then ran off to Florida. And the biological father sued her. Anyway, so Mm. uh, while this was happening, sort of, I'm sorry, (laughs) I'll bore you with all this (laughs) Christian stuff. While this was happening, there was a South African doctor based in Cleveland, who was called by a a radiologist in New York, who said, "Listen, my wife had a hysterectomy. She can't have kids, but we froze our embryos. I know that this." Has been done in mice before, but do you think we could take our embryo and implant it into a woman, a surrogate, who could give birth to our child? And the doctor, Wolf Utian, was like, Well, I've never done it before. And, you know, people, this has never been done in humans before, but we can try it. Anyway, long story short, they did it. The surrogate was based in Michigan. So the first gestational carrier. So that's somebody who, which is 95% of surrogacies these days are gestational carriers who's not biologically related to the child. That first child was born in Michigan um, in 1985. So anyway, long story short. So you have these sort of two really important things that have happened in Michigan. And then in 1988, the state wanted to stop this lawyer Noel Keene from doing these contracts. And so what they did is they created a law called the surrogate parenting act which made surrogacy um, contractual surrogacy in Michigan not only a felony, but also there was a hefty fine behind it. And they were the first state to do that. And now we're the last state in the U.S. where surrogacy is still considered a crime. So um, that was very interesting for me. And that explained why we couldn't do surrogacy in Michigan when we initially looked. And so now I'm on the board of, a, as you mentioned earlier, this organization, Michigan Fertility Alliance, where we're working to try and get that law changed. Um, so that was kind of, for me, probably personally the most interesting, but I learned so much about sort of surrogacy in so many different countries and talked to, you know, I think in the end I spoke to like 90 experts across the globe about surrogacy. So I was, you know, I could tell you about surrogacy in Mexico and Ukraine and India. And, you know, I just, I'm, You know, for a while when I was writing the book, all I seemed to do was think about surrogacy. Even in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and be like, oh, I need to write this down. As you do when you're working on stories and you're sort of, you know, very caught up in
0: it. Because, I mean, you have such a, a vast repertoire of articles you've written, books you've worked on, you know, from looking at the EU to looking at girls' education. You've covered a lot of great topics. I mean, where does this fit in? Is it, is this, was this the hardest to write? or kind of the easiest because you knew so much about it already? It was kind of both. And, and what was interesting is there were
1: definitely strands that picked up on things that I like to write about. So, for example, I'm very interested in writing about, you know, as you mentioned, girls education, um, and about sort of development. And, for example, I write in the book, when I found out that um, Julie, our surrogate, had the miscarriage of our last genetic embryo, I was in Tanzania, I was working on a project about girls education. And I remember the next morning, um you know I think you probably would would know this very well too that sometimes you know you, things are happening in your own life but when you're out sort of on a story you can kind of it helps you kind of park all your other problems and focus on what you know it's, it's a good what's the word i want a good um, distraction in a sense anyway so we were i was doing these interviews with these young women who you know their families you know could barely afford to send them to school and they were you know like they had to walk miles and miles to get to school and whatever and i remember thinking to myself this is where you could see how Surrogacy in some countries, if there aren't laws in place, um, could really take advantage of vulnerable people. And this is one of the debates and issues around surrogacy is that in the developed world, you know, in places like the US, the UK, and Israel, there are laws in place for the most part that kind of really um, you know not only protect the the intended parents but also the surrogates but in countries you know in the developing world you know if there aren't laws in place you know you could see how you know women could be taken advantage of and so i there was sort of lots of strands in the book that i kind of you know worked into sort of the other things that i've written about in the past so yeah there were definitely connections and and i found Looking into sort of surrogacy in the developing world, while it was distressing, incredibly interesting and important to sort of challenge some of those notions um, about
0: sort of this as a practice in in some parts of the world. One of the things that's been amazing following your journey to motherhood is just the amazing sense of humor you've kept, at least least outwardly throughout. And I remember you were blogging about it and sharing on social media, like when you were at that Taylor Swift concert, and you had to give yourself horm- hormone injections, and you had to keep it <laughs> cold with the frozen peas. and like That must have been really tricky, not just logistically, but also emotionally. And just to keep that stiff upper lip, but also the sense of humor. I mean, that was a uh, very impressive. Well-
1: that was one of the things that I just, I I think I, I, that's just sort of part of who I am anyway, but also I just sort of thought, you know, if I really, if I allow myself to go down this really sad highway, you know, how do I get myself out of it? Cause there is so much heartache. You know, I was just interviewing a woman yesterday who's from the Arab American community in Dearborn, Michigan, and she's going through infertility. And like, you know, she, you know, it's such as, you know, it's, we hear these people's tales and it's just so sad. And, you know, it's like, you just think like, so I kind of determined that I really wanted to try and keep a good sense of humor and, and try to be as, you know, and and like, yes, there was the story of the Taylor Swift concert where, yeah, I had to give myself an injection and I didn't have, it was, it was ridiculous because I'd had to inject myself earlier in the day. And then I'd accidentally thrown away like the needle I was supposed to use for later. And then I'm like, (laughs) I have to inject myself at a specific time. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's no needle. But luckily I had the old needle. And, you know, like I told my gynecologist about it later. And she's like, my God, the fact that you didn't get some like blood poisoning from what you did. I mean, <laughs> and then there was another time I was in LA and we were at an LA Lakers game. And again, I had to give myself this trigger shot, the over which, you know, starts the kind of eggs, you know, work their way down to the, you know, to, you know, when you're going to do, um, Take, uh, can't think what the term is anymore when they take the X out to to create the embryo. But anyway, and so I was at this LA Lakers game, and my husband, I said, Well, you know, do you want to come into the bathroom and give me the, the shot in the butt? And he was like, No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so I went into the bathroom at the Staples Center and I injected, you know, this, my OBITREL shot. And then I went and bought some popcorn and sat down, and, you know, <laughs> pop uncle, as they say. But, you know, it was just, so those stories at the time weren't that funny, but now in hindsight, I kind of laugh. And, you know, obviously it turned out, you know, okay and and very happy for me. But yeah, there were some definitely probably I'm lucky that I didn't get, as my doctor said, you know, blood poisoning from just being completely like, you shouldn't give needles to me is pretty much the.
0: <laughs> and, and along the way, did, I mean, it sounds like you've built up this great community of other people who are going through this and maybe some who are suffering in silence, because it's not something that people talk about very much. I mean, I guess that's changing a bit. And I like that you're helping to get it more out in the open. I mean, was that helpful to you talking to other people and the sharing on social media, you Know, and reaching out to other people who have had these issues.
1: It really has been. And I mean what was really interesting to me was that because I'm so open, I think that's just partially my personality, partially being a journalist, you know, when I would start to talk to people about my infertility issues, I had so many people open up to me and say, I've never been able to tell anybody this before or I've never talked about this before. But like, you know, and they would all of these people coming out of the woodwork, you know, you know, people that I knew, people that I didn't know, telling me about their fertility struggles. And You know i think it it, you know it it helps to talk about it and i think that for me there's so much to bond on because it's like you know for example you know you have to mix chemicals and like it's just the worst in the world it's like you wake up in the morning you have to like mix all the you know and to like talk to somebody else about it who understands and you just sort of you know those kinds of things and i think yeah i think it's so important to discuss it and i understand some people it's very private and they don't want to and I, i respect that i really do but i think Again, going back to this interview I did yesterday with this woman um, from Dearborn, and she was saying in her community, it's really not discussed. And she said, you know, if I had been able to talk about these things years ago, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had to go through the heartache that I've had to go through. And so I think that the more we discuss these issues, you know, because one in, you know, I think it's what is it, ten to twelve? Sorry, twelve to fifteen percent of people globally at some point in their lives suffer from infertility. I mean, wow. that's a huge
0: number. I mean, that's huge a huge number. number of people.
1: And so, you know, you sort of think, well, that's, you know, that's the same number actually of people who, um, of women who get breast cancer, you know, and and I mean, obviously, you know, you can't compare breast cancer to infertility because breast cancer, you know, is, is, is oftentimes, you know, um, sadly, uh, you know, terminal, but mm-hmm. point being, everybody knows somebody who's had breast cancer mm-hmm. and chances are everybody knows somebody who's gone through infertility, but maybe they don't know it because people don't feel they can talk about it.
0: And so what would your advice be for somebody who wanted to look into surrogacy?
1: I would say, well, one of the things I thought was very interesting, this, um, a professor at the University of Texas, Arlington, Heather Jacobson, who wrote a book about surrogacy in America, she Mm -hmm. said to me, first of all, we need to call them surrogacies, because how surrogacy is, again, in the Western world, and I'm, you know, Canada, the US, the UK, Israel, is so different than surrogacies in the developing world. And so I think it's very important that if you're looking at surrogacy, to do it, where there are laws in place to do it in a developed country, you know, to, I mean, granted, you can save a lot of money and it comes down sometimes to monetary issues. If you go to a place like Ukraine, for example, but there have been some horrific cases, you know, that have happened in the Ukraine where there's just not the regulation. So I would say just do your due diligence and, you know, um, there are ways, you know, it is obviously expensive, but, you know, there are Agencies that offer, you know, um, sometimes discounts. There are ways that you can save money to to do it and sort of, um, but I think just really making sure that, you know, the agency that you work with is legitimate and that the surrogate, that you speak to the surrogate and that the surrogate is doing it um, because it's something that she feels she wants to do, um, and is confident and comfortable doing it. Um, as opposed Mm. to people I know who have interviewed, who've done surrogacy in places like India and Thailand, where they never met the surrogate until she was giving birth Mm. to me, personally, I really struggle with that. Um, and surrogacy cross-border surrogacy, international surrogacy is no longer legal in India and Thailand, for example, but point being, it used to be like that. So I think, yeah, I think just due diligence and really researching and talking to people and just making sure that, you know, who you're working with, it's legitimate and that you feel, you know, what's that expression? If it feels icky, it probably is. So just, you know, really make sure that you feel comfortable um, in, in, in the whole process and process.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. It's been such a joy to follow from afar, especially because the kids are so adorable. Thank you
1: very much. They're they're wonderful and like I said, they're probably
0: causing trouble at the <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't wait to read your book. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me.